Zechariah chapter 3. We looked at three visions. The vision of the myrtle tree. Remember Christ among the myrtle trees? And then we looked at the vision of the four craftsmen. And who's the ultimate craftsman? Christ, right? The builder of his church. And he's even building special rooms in heaven in, in glory for his own who come to him someday. And then we focus on the measuring line. Boy, the church is going to become really big throughout the world. And it's spread to all nations today. We see God fulfilling his promise. And today we look at the fourth vision. And that's from Zechariah 3. You'll see a name there, Joshua. Don't get mixed up with jo Joshua who followed Moses, who brought the people into the land of Canaan. This is Joshua, a high priest, okay, who came back from the Babylonian captivity, came back to the land of promise. And Joshua came back with the people, with the exiles, in 539 under the edict of Cyrus. And now it's about 20 years later. Okay, and something I want uh, boys and girls here to think about. Think of this question. Why are Joshua's clothes filthy? His clothes are dirty. What does that mean? We're going to hear about that. And when the angel of the Lord removes those clothes, what does that mean? He removes those dirty clothes, and then the angel of the Lord puts on rich, beautiful clothing. So those three questions, what are those dirty clothes? What does that represent? Those clean, the removal of those dirty clothes, what does that mean? And then the putting on of the rich robes. And then we have a couple questions after that again too, but we'll start with that. Okay. Well, we're going we're gonna to ask afterwards, right? And then the, who is the angel of the Lord? Always remember, when it's a capital A, it always refers to Christ. Christ before he was born in Bethlehem. Christ before he became man. Christ was there. He was not an angel, but he came in the form, before he was born, he came in the form of an angel, often throughout the Old Testament time. So full of gospel. Never think that the Old Testament is not gospel and the New Testament is. Old and New Testament are all gospel. And we're going to see it so beautifully here in, in Zechariah 3 today. So full of Jesus and pointing to Jesus. So Zechariah 3, we read these words. Then he showed me, that's the Lord, showed me, that's Zechariah. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments, or you could say filthy clothes, and was standing before the angel, capital A. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away those filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I have removed your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. They put the clothes on him. And the angel of the Lord stood by. Then the angel of the Lord admonished Joshua, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways, 
If you will keep my command, then you shall also judge the house, my house, and likewise have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions who sit before you, for they are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. For behold, the, the stone that I have laid before Joshua, upon the stone are seven eyes. Behold, I will engrave its inscription, says the Lord of hosts. And I will remove the iniquity of the land in one day. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. So if you were to outline this passage, you could say, cleansed, clothed, commissioned. Right? He receives a cleansing, he receives new clothes, and now he has the royal robes to serve God in this world. Right? To serve God in his kingdom. It's very much the pattern of the Christian life. You see that right here. So full. The gospel. Well, you know, this vision here deals now with a problem. What's the problem? The sin problem. The problem of sin among God's people. You know, the Lord, in these first revisions, He gives His people so many promises. Promises of blessings. Promises of life. Eternal life. And promises of His kingdom. And now they were to show their faith. They're to show their faith, their belief in God's promises by acting upon it in obedience. In this case, to rebuild the temple and therefore bring Joshua back. Joshua, by the name, is another name for Jesus. <laughs> Points to Jesus. Bring Joshua back and he would be reinstated as their high priest. But were they in a position to receive those promises of God? I mean, look at their legacy of their past. They had so many sins. They worshipped idols. They broke the Sabbath day. There were so many sins. And, and even now, there was this on, they were aware of their ongoing sin and failures. They think, would God really love us? I mean, there's so many barriers in their mind that they think, no, God's not going to fulfill his promises for me. I'm not good enough. Their awareness of sin was a barrier in the way of them joyfully, gladly accepting God's promises. You know, when we don't joyfully accept God's promises, it cripples our service, doesn't it? And that's where God wants them to see. Hey, my promises are for you. I want you joyfully to accept them. And that opens the door for service to God and service to others. This fourth, vision, visions, this fourth vision pictures their sin before the Lord. In whom? It, it, it pictures the sin of the people. In whom? In Joshua, their high priest. Remember, the high priest represents the people before the Lord. The people are filthy, right? And you know that from seeing Joshua. He's filthy. He's dirty. He comes in dirty clothes. And dirty clothes represents a dirty heart here. A, a, a filthy heart. That's, that's what... This is so stained with dirtiness. How could God truly return to live among them unless they're forgiven? Unless they're cleansed? And so we're going to see a couple points here. First of all, the cleansing. Then the clothing, that is. As well as the commission. The cleansing from sin and the commission to serve. 
Now, if you look at chapter 2, it's always important to always see what is the previous verse. And in the previous verse, it concludes with these words. Be silent, chapter 2, verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. World, pay attention. The Lord is holy. He is ready to act. He's ready to act on his plan. And now we begin to see, where does he begin to act? He begins to act in the church. He begins to act in his house. In chapter 3. And in chapter 3, verse 1, where do we enter? We enter into a court. Who of us have ever been into a court before? We've seen court in operation, right? There's, an, there's a, uh, a lawyer's defense lawyer, prosecuting attorney, a judge. Well, here Zachariah showed a heavenly court. And he's drawn in, he's drawn in to participate uh, in a heavenly court scene. Okay? Uh, really, that's God's holy habitation. Zachariah says, the Lord showed me. And what does Zachariah see? He sees Joshua, the high priest, standing before. So he's standing here. And there's the angel of the Lord. Who's the angel of the Lord again? Christ. He's standing before the angel of the Lord and he's not fit to stand before him. Verse 3 says, he has filthy clothes. He's dressed in filthy garments. And here you see Joshua. What's he doing standing before the Lord? What, what did high priests do? Right? When they, when they inter, intercede on behalf of God's people, they would stand. Right? They would pray. So he's probably ministering on behalf of God's people. Uh, bring them before the Lord. But he's not fit. He's unfit. And who's at Joshua's right hand side? Well, here's Joshua. And here's Satan. Look at this guy. Look how dirty he is. Look how bad he is. Look how guilty he is. He's continually pointing his finger at Joshua before the angel of the Lord. You could say he's a prosecuting attorney. He's the lawyer who's going to make his case against Joshua and therefore the people. By the way, you know what Satan means? <sighs> accuser. Huh? We can think of Revelation 12, verse 10. He's called the accuser of, his, of Christ's brethren, right? So brother and sister. He's the accuser. He loves to accuse the church of wrongdoing. And he can always find wrong things in our lives that he can accuse us of. So Satan brings a charge against Joshua, and not only against Joshua, remember he's a representative, through him, the people. Sinful. You know, you could say a lot of bad things about them. You could have a sheet of paper and just list all the bad things they did. And that's what Satan was doing. Because sometimes we keep a record of wrongs too. When we do that and not forgive, we're being like Satan. We're, we're just... Accusing, 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 accusing. That's what Satan was doing. And you know what? No doubt. There were enemies out there who were opposing God's people. They were wanting to rebuild. They said, ha, ah, look at you. Look what you did. Look what kind of people you are. Look how bad you are. Why do you think you went into, into Babylon anyway? Why do you think your temple was destroyed anyway in Jerusalem with it? It's because you were so bad. That's why God destroyed. That's why God... Uh, put you into exile. All kinds of things 
against them, right? They were very, very, very aware of their sins. So Satan is pointing his finger before the angel of the Lord and saying, remember, guilty. Guilty as judged. He should be punished. There's, there should be no grace for them. Joshua's dressed in filthy clothes. What's that picture of? Dirty clothes. It's a picture of sinfulness. Right? The sinfulness. The sinfulness of the human heart. Terrible stains of guilt. Probably wrecked their conscience. They're guilty. They're feeling guilty for all the things they have done. That same word for filthy is used in Isaiah 64, verse 6. The same exact word where it talks about our, our righteousness. What does Isaiah said? We are all like an unclean thing. All of our righteousnesses, so the best things we do are like what? Are like filthy rags. Okay, so that's the image there. By the way, are Satan's accusations true? Oh, yes, they are. He knows it. He knows it's true because he can point out all kinds of wrong things. <laughs> and he's doing that. It's true. And Joshua, is he defending himself? He's not. He's completely silent. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is in his holy habitation. He's silent. But the vision doesn't stop here. Thank God. Thank God. The Lord does not turn away from his people. Though he would have been perfectly just to do so, to lead them in their exile, to lead them in their sin, but he doesn't. The angel of the Lord, Christ himself, one before whom Joshua stands, he's the one who comes to Joshua's defense. Imagine that. The one dressed in dirty clothes is... That the angel of the Lord comes to his defense now. And what's he say? The angel of the Lord directly, not at Joshua, but at Satan. He says, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. That word rebuke is very strong. It's like Jesus rebuking the demons from the, from the, uh, the demonic. Right? The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem. Jerusalem, don't think of the city. Think of the church. Jerusalem in the Old Testament stands for the church. The Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Where does Satan go? He can't stand in the presence of the Lord. He flees, right? Think of James 4, verse 7. Right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Satan is silenced and you hear nothing more about him in this vision. Certainly God's people were failing the Lord. But the fact remains, they're chosen. They're chosen. Not because they deserve it, but because of the Lord's grace. That's why they're chosen. His choice remains. And that's why the sovereign Lord brought them back into the land, because he was there ready to rebuild the church and come among them again in his presence is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Look at verse 2. A brand is like a stick. Right? A stick plucked from the fire is a stick that's been half burnt, right? And you'll pull it from the fire. Think of a burning house. And this is something very precious that 
Oh, this was saved. Well, in a sense, that's the way God's people were. They were singed by the fires of God's judgment upon them by, because of her sins. Yet by God's grace, he pulls her out before she goes into the fires of hell. He pulls her out. He rescues her. Is this not a brand snatched from the fire? Wow. Long before God told Moses that he sovereignly chose them. Not because they were good. God didn't choose them because he saw some good in them. But he chose them, why? Because he loved them. There was nothing in them that he should love them. But of his own purpose, and of his own grace, he loved them. Despite her sin. And see verses 4 and 5, because God has chosen her, what will he do? He's not going to stop there. He's also going to cleanse her. God, those whom God chooses, he will do the work of cleansing so that they want that cleansing. And that's what we see in verses 4 and 5. Israel is not good. God's people are not good. But God is good. And this is so beautifully pictured in Joshua, the representative. Think of the act of cleansing. The symbol here is so very clear. Though Joshua the high priest and his people were clothed with filthy garments, that's with, with sinful works, the angel of the Lord, Christ himself, would remove their sin and clothe them with rich robes, clean garments. You notice here, the angel of the Lord, the Christ, speaks to the other angels. There's other angels there standing by, verse 4. He says to them, and who are these other angels? They're there to do the work, they're there to do, carry out the work on behalf of God, right? They're, they're there to minister to God's people. And the angel of the Lord, who's Christ himself, tells those angels, you take away those filthy garments from him. Take those filthy garments away. And the angel of the Lord says to Joshua, see, I removed your iniquity from you. I removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. Now that word remove is powerful. It's more than just pass over. It's not God winking and saying, okay, I'm not going to, I'm just going to pretend it's not there. No, God's going to deal with it. He's going to deal with it in such a way he's going to remove it and remove that sin entirely, completely, so that it's no longer there. That's the sense of remove here. Entirely, completely. And here you see a prophecy of Christ's work. Right? Those filthy garments which the angel Lord removes points to his greater coming when through him God will forgive and forgive in the sense of remove the sins of his people. And more than that, not just remove but put new clothes. What, do those, what are those new clothes that he puts on us? He doesn't leave us naked. When he takes, when he removes the filth from us, he doesn't leave us naked, but he covers us with the robes of what? Of his righteousness. His righteousness are the new robes that he clothes his people. That's the imagery here. So think of your bank account. When you have a deep debt, and someone very generous comes to you, he not only, let's say, pays off the entire debt, forgiveness, but he also fills your account infinitely 
so that you can imagine how full that account is. That's the righteousness of God in Christ. Right? Removed. Debt removed. Account infinitely filled with the precious righteousness of Christ. Right? That's, that's the covering that he, that's portrayed here. There's more. By, by now, Zachariah is getting so excited. He can't keep his mouth shut anymore. <laughs> He's been peeking into the scene all along. He says, now I have something to say. As a matter of fact, it probably comes in the form of a prayer. Yeah, yeah, but also put a turban on him. Now, don't think of the turbans you see today. Because in the Old Testament, in Exodus 28, you see that the priests were to be donned in special regalia. Right? They were to have the breast, uh, the breast piece, the ephod, the garment. And then they had a, 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 what they called a turban, a mitri, they would call it, on, on the head. And, and Zacharias says, yeah, but if you're going to if you're going to put new clothes on them, put new clothes on them all the way. Not 90%, but 100%. And so what do they do? They place their turban on him. And then it says, the clothes were on him. There's a picture of God, you know, uh, he promises to complete the work that has begun in us. He's not going to leave it half done. He's going to complete it. Com he's going to bring it to completion. It's lifelong, but he will bring his work in you to completion. You see that here. And there you see in verse 5, the angel of the Lord just standing by. It's just, uh, uh, he's there, just there approving all, all the work that has been done by him, by the angel of the Lord himself. Just uh, there standing behind what he's been doing. Wow. Yeah. Um, where am I here? Anyway, the, uh, you know, it's interesting that some people are afraid that the teaching of God's election, right? Who does God choose? He chooses ungodly people. He doesn't choose good people, right? People who think they're good, well, if God chooses them, they realize how ungodly they really are. He chooses ungodly people to become his people. And some fear that this teaching of God's election encourages people to say, well, I'm chosen anyway, so I can live the way I want. Don't worry about me keeping the Ten Commandments. I can, I can be lax in my behavior. I can sin all I want and still have forgiveness. Uh, people will say, well, doesn't election encourage that? But you know what? When God chooses a people unto salvation, that may never be separated from the rest of his work of salvation in us. Those whom he chooses, he also cleanses, he also clothes, and he also commissions. That's the aim of election. That's the aim of God's purpose in election, is to restore a people, a holy people to himself, to serve him in this world. And that's exactly what we see in verses 6 through 10. Right? Joshua is cleansed, chosen, cleansed, clothed. For what purpose? Not just to live for himself. You know what? It's, it's God chooses us, cleanses us, He clothes us, not so that we can please ourselves. We work, I mean, we die to that. We're there to please the Lord. We're there to serve the Lord. And that's what we see in verses 6 through 10. The commission to serve the Lord. By the way, boys and girls, a couple more questions. Get back to uh, in that day. If you look at verse 9, it talks about in that day. What does that day refer to? 
and God will remove the iniquity. That, he talks about one day, that one day. What does that one day refer to? And then verse 10, it talks about that day. What does that day refer to? Okay, that's something to think about as we move on towards the last part of this vision. Joshua's cleansed. And now that God says, you're mine, and I've chosen you, I've cleansed you, I've clothed you, and now I'm going to give you a specific commission. Your commission is to serve as high priest in this temple that's about to be rebuilt. And of course, that commission continues today in the church. But already you see it here in verses 6 and 7. Joshua has the responsibility to serve. And to serve the Lord means he's been brought into a relationship with the Lord which shows an obedience, right? An obedience to his word. Look at verse 6 and 7. Then the angel of the Lord, that's Jesus, admonished Joshua saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, if you walk in my ways. What does it mean to walk in his ways? It means to walk according to what the Bible says. That means to walk in his ways. And if you keep my command, in his case, it had to do with his office, his task. He had to carry out his office, his task, diligently before the Lord. Just like father and mother is an office, right? Father, being father and mother is an office. Being an elder is an office. Being a, an, um, a welder is an office or a teacher. Okay, we have to carry out our tasks faithfully. Like with, with Joshua, he's... He's to be personally responsible. He's to walk in the Lord's ways in his personal life. But also in the task that God's given him, he's to walk, is to keep his charge, the charge of the Lord. God says, if you do this, he, he says, these are the promises which are yours. You shall judge my house. You have charge of my courts. I will give you places to walk among those who stand here. Now, we're not going to get into what all that specifically means other than to say that it really focuses on the fact that if you walk in my ways, you're going to experience the presence of the Lord in your life. The fellowship that you have with God and with others. Right? That's, that, that's really the point here. But notice, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God saves his people by grace. By grace alone. Not by works. He saves them by grace so that they can serve him. What you see, that movement that you see in Joshua's life here, is also seen in the life of the Christian. What do you see? When Christians are forgiven of their sins, okay, they're free from the accusations of Satan, and free now to serve the Lord. But it always begins with grace. Always begins with grace and forgiveness. And being robed richly. Right? You're sons and daughters of the king. And now you can freely serve him in this world. That's the sense here. Cleansed, clothed, commissioned to serve God in obedience to his word. It's just so important to see this order in which it happens. Joshua does not have to obey in order to be cleansed and washed. That's other religions. Other religions of the world say, Okay, first you obey... Then you'll be cleansed and washed. That's false. Patently false. It's false religion. It's works-based religion. That's something God will never accept. I'm going to obey. They say that I'm going to obey so that God will cleanse me. That is not according to the Bible at all. You see that here in Joshua, right? It's grace-based. Joshua can't do anything good 
He can do nothing to be forgiven and cleansed. The cleansing he receives is totally 100% from God's grace. And because of that, God says, I did this for you. Now I'm going to commission you to serve me. Always begins with grace. The Christian faith is a grace-based religion. It's a grace-based faith so that we can show our thanks to him, show our, you know, how uh, we, we just sang the song, how vast, not how vast, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Right? In response to all that God has done for us in his grace, we now give our lives in thanksgiving to him. Commissioned to serve the Lord. We're commissioned to walk in his ways. Why? Because we have been accepted by God. Not so that we will be accepted by God, because we have been accepted by God. Now we have the freedom, great freedom, to walk in his ways. And we have a spirit on top of it to help us in that, to keep the charge. Wow. Workspace religion says, if I do enough, if I obey enough, then I'll be accepted by God. The Bible says, there's nothing you can do to be made worthy. Salvation is by God's grace alone. Totally undeserved. But we do good works. Why? We do it in response to what God has done in us. His cleansing, His forgiveness. A life of giving thanks. You know, the entire vision points to a greater than Joshua. We already saw that a little earlier. The angel of the Lord was already present in the Old Testament doing his work and saying, yeah, there's more coming. There's more coming. It's a sign pointing to some greater day that's coming. And that's what we see in verses 8, 9, and 10. Really, you can see 8, 9, and 10 is really the fulfillment of all that we see in the vision already in verses 1 through 7. Look at verse 8. Hear, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your companions, that's the other fellow priests who sit before you, they are a wondrous sign. Now, we're going to look into that. What is the Joshua and the priests, the people, are a wondrous sign. For behold, I am bringing forth my servant, the branch. Who are the wondrous sign? Joshua. The fellow priests. The people. How are they wonder sign? Look what God has done for them. Right? Filthy rags removed. Iniquity forgiven. Clothed with rich robes. There is a wonder sign. By God's grace, they're cleansed. They're clothed. They're commissioned now to serve Him in freedom. This wondrous sign is a sign of whom? Signs always point to something. Okay? It's not their own work, but it points to the one who would come in the flesh, the angel of the Lord here, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would come in the flesh. He speaks of him here as the coming one, the branch. Why does it say the branch? Well, remember, in exile, Israel was, the God's people were reduced to a stump. There was nothing left. And you think, well, where's the future? Well, there was a branch that would come out of the stump. Life would come out of the stump. A life that would give life to the stump. And that's Christ. Christ himself, through whom that uncleanness is dealt with finally in a single day. Verse 9 and 10 builds upon the climax of verse 8. Verse 9, the last part says, And I will remove the iniquity of that land in one day. One day. And that's just referring to one single 24-hour day. 
What is that single day referring to? It's a day that Zechariah foresaw. And it's been fulfilled in our day. What day is that? When the Messiah hung on the cross. That day, on, on, on Golgotha, that one day refers to the day of Golgotha. The day when Christ was brought outside of Jerusalem, hung on a cross, taking upon himself the punishment that his people then, his people today, deserve. The punishment for their sin. Taking sin upon himself. And then crying out, it is finished. It is finished. In one day, removed. Sin's forgiven. Sin's removed. Not merely passed over, but canceled. Removed. Debt's gone. And robed in the righteousness of Christ for all who trust on him. Not everyone is robed with the righteousness of Christ. Oh, no, no. Those who trust in the work of Christ for them, he dresses with rich robes. And you know what? Everyone is equal here because we're all dressed equally beautifully in the sight of God. Dressed in the rich robes of the righteousness of Christ. In one day, that long-awaited day had finally come. That day that Zechariah was looking for, forward to. Christ offered that once-for-all-time sacrifice, the sacrifice of himself. Because of the life he lived and the death he died, we can be assured that we are accepted in him. You know, when you look at your sins, you think, how is it possible? But we're not to look at our own sins. Yes, we should be aware of their sins, and that should drive us to Christ. But we look to Christ. Right? And one day, that one day, it was all taken care of. Sin was dealt with. And you know, the scope of his work doesn't stop there. The end of the vision must not be neglected. And that's verse 10. A commission follows for us as well. In verse 10. Right? Those who experience this cleansing will now invite their friends to share it, that they may share in this work with them. Look at verse 10. In that day, that day refers to, of course, not only Christ's death, but that day also refers to his resurrection, the bringing into new life, his ascension, who's interceding at the right hand of God, the pouring out of his spirit on the church. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, every man will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Hey, come. This is the best news. You know, if you go to, to the gay parade downtown Toronto today, you don't go there to see it, of course. We shouldn't be there in the first place. But, hey, this is the good news for you. You've got to leave your filthy robes. Christ is the one who removes them and dresses us in his own righteousness through repentance and faith. That day refers to Christ rising from the dead, ascending into heaven, pouring out his spirit on the church. It's a picture, you could say, of the blessing poured out from the risen Christ by his spirit. It's a way of picturing paradise in verse 10. Paradise has already begun in the church on earth. Peace, joy, freedom, courage. This is the big reason why Christians tell others about Jesus. Because it's their desire that others may also know something of this. 
Look at the gift that God provided in Christ. You can be set free too. You can be cleansed too and clothed all for free in Christ. Those who know the forgiveness of sins and the blessings of God, yeah, it could be inviting others to share in it. This is the Great Commission of Zechariah. Doesn't it sound very similar to Jesus' Great Commission? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Think of the tens of thousands flaunting their pride in defiance to God this day, downtown Toronto, celebrating pride. The Lord will humble the proud, the scripture says. In this connection, I want to recall a story of Rosaria Butterfield. Maybe you've heard of Rosaria Butterfield. She was so against Christ. She was a lesbian. She was a, a gay, an English professor, a professor of English in a university. And she hated Christians. She hated Christ. Until one day, what did someone do? There was a couple, just a normal Christian couple who invited her into their home and started sharing the love of Christ with her. And she realized, where did they get this from? And the Lord radically changed her life. By the way, today, she's a Reformed Presbyterian, married to a Reformed Presbyterian pastor, a writer, an author. Right? The Lord redirected her life. She's cleansed, clothed, and now she's sharing her story. Amazing what God can do. And that's the scene here, right? Sharing and inviting with others what God has done in Christ. You know, um, there's three things that we don't have to do which can easily cripple our Christian service. One person has put it this way. Uh, he, he said this. He says, the first thing we don't have to do is pretend. The only people in the world that don't have to pretend are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because, like Joshua, that we are. We are sinful. We are that way. We are unclean. In and of ourselves, we are unable to serve God. And facing this truth is the first step towards acknowledging our need for Christ and the cleansing that He gives. We don't need to pretend. The second thing, he says, is we don't have to try to defend ourselves by explaining ourselves for why we did something or by excusing ourselves or by pointing the finger at somebody else. No, we don't need to. Notice Joshua? He's totally silent. In the vision, he's silent. He can say nothing in his own defense. He's guilty. Satan's accusation is true. He's not righteous. Neither are we. But there is one righteous. Who's that? Christ. He's righteous. And the third thing he says, this is the heart of the matter, is because he's righteous, and you trust in him, you're not condemned. You're not condemned. God accepts us through faith in Christ. And what's necessary for us to be accepted by God and to be able to serve him has already been done for us once and for all on a single day on the cross. And the God simply calls for, believe, believe. Our sin, all its terribleness, all its horrific nature of it, was dealt with by that one final perfect sacrifice on that single day. 
We have been put beyond the power of Satan's accusations. The only one who has a right to condemn us is Christ. And what does he do? He doesn't condemn us. <laughs> He's praying for us. Remember in verse 8, it talks about the stone set before Joshua. That stone really refers to the names of the people that he would have prayed before, before the Lord. The names of God's people. Right? Seven stands for the, the number of completion. Likewise here, Christ now carries his people in his heart. He's interceding before them. He knows. He knows we need a defense. He knows we need a lawyer. He knows we need an advocate. That's what Christ is doing. Finally, Piper observes that when Christians have a guilty conscience, it keeps them from serving. Isn't that true? It keeps us from serving if we have a guilty conscience. Zechariah would say to Christians who have ongoing feelings of guilt that they're listening to the accusations of Satan rather than to the voice of God. Who are you going to believe? Who are you going to trust? Now, God does not tone down our sin. He doesn't say it doesn't matter. But as horrific and as terrible as sin may be, God has dealt with it in the death of Jesus. Indeed, the accusation of Satan, if we pay attention to that all the time, is that we waste our Christian lives. The greatest weapon against Satan is to know that the punishment for your sin has been paid by Christ on the cross. And it's this gospel that frees us now to confess our sins without any fear of condemnation before God, because we have Christ, Christ. It's this truth that this world needs to hear. A world so broken by sin, so much confusion, so much religion. But this truth in whom God is our salvation in Christ, this truth we must believe and grasp firmly. It's the only way. The only way of God for the whole world. We must stand on this truth and when we stand on this truth, we can then rise up and serve God in this world, in this broken world. We're going to be singing in a moment. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of men can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Persons who authored this song must have been also reading Zechariah 3. And Christ alone.